John chapter 21 is all about restoration. The disciples limped their way through the events of the Garden of Gethsemane and then dispersed and deflected their connection with Jesus throughout the rest of that weekend. This would have left all of them, but especially Peter, with some traumatic wounds that needed to be healed. And that's what we'll see Jesus doing here, healing the brokenhearted. Welcome to episode 26, The Restoration of Peter, part one. Well, welcome back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. This is Greg Hall, and I've got the lava lamp once again warming up for another episode. And this episode is going to be unlike any other. Today is our first discussion with someone other than just me. (laughs) In a little bit, we'll be welcoming our very first guest to the podcast. We're at the end of our march through the book of John, and we'll be welcoming an expert in the field to help us unpack this last chapter. We'll get to that in just a minute, but first, an update. A few weeks ago, we launched the All America Listener Challenge, and I've got the updates on our progress available at the website at rethinkingscripture.com. This last week, we added listeners in Aptos, California, and our first ever listener in Colorado tuned in from the Mile High City of Denver. Thanks to all of you who have helped spread the word. I appreciate your efforts. Well, today's episode is all about restoration. While the events of the cross were certainly traumatic for Jesus, there were other events that happened that weekend that were traumatic for the disciples. And who had the most trauma? Well, it could be argued that Peter came out the worst for the wear. He, along with the other disciples, slept through the prayer time in the Garden of Gethsemane, And then Peter was rebuked by Jesus for his attempted murder of the high priest's servant. And if that wasn't enough, it was Peter that denied knowing who Jesus was, not just once, but three separate times. We rightly focus much of our attention on the redemptive results of the crucifixion. But chapter 21 is all about restoration, and specifically the restoration of the disciples. And to help us unpack this chapter, I've invited Dr. Warren Gage to the podcast. And before we get to the interview, I'd just like to mention the new website, watermarkgospel.com, that Dr. Gage just launched. Many of you are likely familiar with the videos produced by The Bible Project. They are short, professionally animated videos filled with deep theological insights. Dr. Gage has started developing his own content using a similar format. The videos on watermarkgospel.com are geared to show how a reader can see the story of Jesus in every other story in the Bible. So the Bible, then, is really just one story about Jesus. We'll split the interview with Dr. Gage over two separate episodes. So next week, I'll talk about Watermark Gospel videos in a little more detail. For now, I'll just put some links in the show notes for you to explore. And so, without any further delay, let's start talking to Dr. Gage about the content in John chapter 21.
Well, today on the episode, we have a special guest and his name is Warren Gage. And I've talked about him several times throughout previous episodes. Uh, I think I first mentioned him back in episode number two, and he was fully a part of uh, developing the wedding theme in episode eight. And then again, with the temple, God and Jesus as temple fulfillment in the book of John. So we've talked about Dr. Gage a lot, and I'd just like to welcome him to the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Greg. It's a joy to be with you and to see you again. It's been a while since we've actually seen each other in person. It has been a little while. Last time was up maybe in Bellingham when you were doing some recording with with Faith Life up there. And you went on the trip to Greece and Turkey with us. Yes, yes. And that was uh, outstanding. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. Well, very good. We've been walking through, and I know you've listened maybe to parts of different episodes, so you're kind of familiar with the format, but we've been walking through the book of John. We're happy to have you here to finish out the last chapter, and there's a lot of content to get to. So how about if we just jump right in? Sure. Yeah, no, that's great. Okay. It seems like John chapter 20 sort of ends with a concluding statement, like it would be appropriate if chapter 20 was actually the end of the gospel. And some people in the commentaries think that maybe chapter 21 was added by John as an epilogue later. I don't know if you have run across that or have any thoughts on that. Oh, I've seen that. I think that's absolutely wrong. Uh, it's, we, ha- we have the advantage now of chiastic patterning, and the chiastic patterning that you see all over John and Revelation indicates that uh, the patterns run right through uh, the, you know, chapters 1 through 20, and include chapter 21, so it's clearly woven into the same text, and I think that goes, obviously, that goes back to uh, John himself. So, it's woven together, it's one text, it's actually connected to the very beginning of Revelation as well. Uh, No, it's clearly a part of the text, and John's purpose in writing it is to describe the, the restitution of Peter, because Peter had fallen in his three denials, and the church would never have accepted him as one of the chief shepherds of the church had Jesus not specifically restored him. Luke had his own restoration of Peter's story. John is the one with the more elaborate one. Uh, this, right. is a, this is where Christ puts him back into ministry and calls him away once again from catching fish to say, feed my lambs and feed my sheep. So he's making him a shepherd and reappointing him. And on the basis of this strong uh, affirmation, Peter could then resume his role as being one of the chief apostles. Exactly. Uh, at the very beginning of this chapter, uh, I've noticed a couple dovetailing things, and I, I know that uh, the miraculous catch that we'll get to uh, later in the chapter is a dovetailing with uh, Luke's gospel. But here at the beginning, I noticed that Nathaniel of Cana is mentioned in verse two. We haven't seen him since the beginning of John's gospel. So that's another like a, like bookends. And then uh-huh. uh, John uses the term, the sons of Zebedee, uh, of which he is one. <laughs> so it's not uncommon to probably use that, but this is the first time we've seen that in John and he doesn't seem to explain it. And my theory is that because he pulls that reference out He's assuming that his readership has probably also read some of the other synoptics that use that uh, phrase to describe uh, those two disciples, the sons of Zebedee. Yeah, John is clearly writing after and depended upon the so-called synoptic gospels. 
And the evidence of that, the clearest evidence, is that he raises the charge that the religious leaders make against Jesus that he was born of fornication, which means that if he's born of fornication, he has no messianic claim because he has no right and title to the, to the kingdom uh, as a son of David. And he raises that objection, which is only answered if you understand his, his right and title is specifically addressed in Matthew, who said he was a son of David, son of Abraham. But Luke mentions it as well, and so you have the, the legitimacy of his claim to be the heir of David elaborately given in those nativity accounts. You don't have that in John, but he has to be depending upon it. So that's the significance yes. of, of it. And, and so I think oftentimes in modern day, we have readers that just pick up the book of John as a solo study. And oftentimes we don't dovetail it the way John expects us to dovetail back with the other synoptics because he is giving hints like this sons of Zebedee comment. He's giving hints to, Oh, I, I'm assuming that you've read another gospel already and you have that content already on board. So I'm just going to supplement and here we go. Yeah. He writes, it's a different character. That's why they call the three synoptic gospels that see the same perspective and John writes what Augustine called a spiritual gospel, and it's, it's very different. It's not inconsistent or contradictory to anything in the other gospels, but it is written from a different perspective. And it's written with a companion piece, just like Luke, his, his companion piece is Acts, John's companion piece is Revelation. And they are interconnected by a series of consecutive and chiastic and typological correspondences. So it's, it's a bifid and in order to understand John, you have to understand Revelation, and Revelation is unfolded in John. So just like Luke and Acts are, are intertextually connected, John and Revelation are. So, I know you've done a ton of work on the connection between John's Gospel and John's book of Revelation and how those are interconnected. And honestly, I've taught that several times after learning it from you. And every single time, and I'm sure you get this response as well, people just are flabbergasted that we should be reading those two together, that John actually wrote them, expecting them to be studied together, just like, like you said, Luke wrote two books, Luke and Acts. Yeah, um, one of the evidences of that is, is seen really in the text in, in John 21. When he's talking about the, fish, the fishermen that are in the boat— that Jesus talks to across the waters, he says, uh, Simon Peter, verse 2, and Thomas, Nathaniel, the two sons of Zebedee, it's implied, and then two others. He just says two others, and the reason for he, he doesn't name them, but two others is get you up to seven, which is a significant number in John's theology. So he has seven disciples in a boat, and Jesus is calling out to them across the waters, and he's calling them basically, to repentance. Emblematically, that's seen at the beginning, then, of Revelation, where Jesus is calling out from Patmos to the seven churches that are across the waters um, of the Aegean Sea in western uh, Turkey or Roman Asia. And so it's, uh, that's a, an emblematic anticipation and, and reflection upon that, that the end of John is tied to the beginning of Revelation in a very unique way. Yeah. That, I often say to people, when you're reading the Gospels and something just seems kind of odd, there's probably something yeah. else going on. 
And this is always, the end of verse two has always kind of thrown me for a loop. Like, why didn't he just name the other two (laughs) disciples? He's taken the time. He's actually taken the word space where he could have named them in the same amount of space, but he just Mm -hmm. leaves them sort of unnamed. Yeah, because his point is to get to seven. I mean, that's pretty clearly the intent. And that's the significant point. If we needed to know their names, he could have recorded them, but he didn't. Well, let's go ahead and get into uh, a little more of the content. And I know we're, we're heading right into this miraculous catch. And I know that that dovetails. Uh, John has an expectation that you've also read an account of the first calling in Luke, uh, where there was a miraculous catch. So you've got to have that on board to understand this. And I'll mm-hmm. let you kind of expound upon it, if you would. All right. Um Twenty-one, one. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. So there's the Sea of Galilee, is another name for Tiberias. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will also come with you. So they went out and got into the boat that night. They caught nothing. I think that what what he's describing here is Simon Peter, he's he's seen the Lord and he knows that the Lord is resurrected, but he hasn't yet been restored. In fact, Jesus has not even called him by name as far as it's reported. So he doesn't know what role he's playing and he's gone back to Galilee. And so he's thinking he's going to go back to his original occupation, which was he was a fisherman. That's the craft he knew. And so he he comes up with this idea, I'm going fishing. Now, of course, Jesus had called him away from his nets to make him a fisher of men. And he's thinking he's been a failure as a fisher of men. And so he's going fishing. And because he's decisive and he's kind of a leader, the other six just kind of will follow anything that moves. But they, too, are in some consternation about how they relate to Christ and his program. So they said to him, we will come we'll come with you. And they went out and got into the boat. That night they caught nothing. So double Peter's failure. He's a failure as a fisher of men. He's also a failure uh, as a fisherman. So he's really at a low point. They went out into the boat. That night they caught nothing. Now, my suspicion is when they're out in the, the lake, depending on how far they are into the lake, Peter may have wanted to delay until morning because he has... He has betrayed the Lord that was noted by the Savior with, with the, the cock crow. So in the Galilee, there are going to be you know chickens all over the place. And so he's going to hear that for the rest of his life, because Jesus tied it to a natural phenomenon, his three betrayals uh, to the, the cock crow, he's going to hear that from now on. So every morning is going to begin with grief. And perhaps he was out in the depths of the sea in order not to hear that. But in any case, they came close to the the beach there when day was breaking. And so my suspicion is there are going to be cocks crowing all around when Jesus is confronting him and interviewing him with respect to his restoration. In a modern day sense, we call those triggers. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think 
There are things that happen that uh, remind us and pull us back to a traumatic episode in our lives. And I Mm -hmm. think chapter 21 for Peter, it's full of triggers. And the cock crow that he would have heard from, you know, the shore is maybe the first of those. Well, I suspect that cocks crow many times. And I suspect that those are in a way like daggers to his heart when he's talking to Christ himself. But what the Lord is doing in kindness as he restores him, as he has him three times affirm his love for the Savior. And so Peter, from every morning after this, he will begin with the remembrance of his weakness in the flesh. And then he will immediately remember how the Lord in grace had restored him in the same place. So he will begin the morning it has kind of a comic trajectory. He'll begin low with the memory of his, you know, he'll be awakened by the crowing of the cock, and then he will immediately remember seeing the Lord who who uh, restored him in the morning in the hearing of that, you know, with, with the three affirmations of love. So psychologically, I think it would have tremendous healing effect for him, for those trigger moments, like you say. Yeah, and triggers can be bad, and but they can also be good in a restorative sense. And, and I think that's what Jesus is probably doing for Peter here. He's taking a negative trigger, and he's connecting it with his restoration. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so it would, you know, he, he doesn't erase the consequences of his denial, but he restores and repairs them. And, and I think in that sense, he deepens his love for Jesus that way, his love of a Savior, because as far as Peter can fall, the love of Jesus was there to catch him and to restore him. Remember, Jesus had told Peter that Satan had desired to sift him like wheat, but that he had prayed for him. When Peter fell asleep in the garden, Jesus persevered in prayer. And so Paul tells us that Jesus made a good confession before Pilate, but Peter, who slept through his three seasons of prayer, then fell spectacularly before these Galilean uh, girls. So, so when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was him. And so Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, no. So he knows already that they have had no catch. That is, they're unfruitful. And he said to them, cast the net on the right hand of the boat, and you will find a catch. Now that makes no sense to the fishermen. Fish don't feed in the daytime, even in the shallows, and they know that this is not according to their nautical lore, how they would catch. But when he says that, that recalls his original call for them. So this constitutes a second call into ministry for all of them, not just Peter. And he tells them to cast on the right side of the boat. So they cast, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. So they know that it's supernatural. These are experienced fishermen. And they know that the only one who could do that is the one who had done that, and that is the raised, the, the resurrected Christ. So that disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, and the text here tries to be euphemistic and says, for he was stripped for work, but actually the Greek text, for he was naked, and that's much richer in its theological context, as you can well imagine. Uh, it puts him in another Adam kind of a context after his fall. And he threw himself into the sea. That is, he is covered in the sea. I think that's related to the, the foot washing, remember, where, again, he fails three times in understanding Jesus. The last time when Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me, he asked to be uh, bathed 
and Jesus corrects that misunderstanding. But I think that this is related to that because here he's covered completely by the water. As it were, it's kind of he's baptized into the sea. He's washed in the sea. And uh, that reaffirms his relationship or begins the restoration of his relationship with Jesus. But the other disciple, uh, disciples came in the little boat for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away. Let me just point out something that has caught my eye as I've read this too. It's that whole dovetailing aspect. Uh, Back in Luke, when that first miraculous catch happened, it was in Peter's boat that the net was, and John was in a different boat. And it's interesting to go back and look at Peter's response to that first catch. He says, and I'm back in Luke uh, 5, 8. It says, when, mm-hmm. but when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus's feet saying, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all of his companions. And I think that oftentimes when this John 21 miraculous catch is taught, we're told that Peter is jumping into the water so that he can get back to shore faster than the boat. But what I hear you saying is maybe there's some different imagery going on. Maybe it's it's to bring up this this picture of a naked man who's confronted with sin and wants to cover himself like like that first Adam. Well, when he's responding to that he's responding to it it's the Lord, which John says, and he's naked in front of his God like Adam, who told you that you were naked, and, and Adam's instinct is to hide himself. And so I think that's really what's what's related. But yeah, it goes back to the original calling, because this, is, this constitutes a second calling from nets to being fishers of men. So that's all being replicated. The Lord is reiterating his original call for them to leave their nets, and he's restoring them to that original calling to, to be the blessing to the nations that Israel was intended to be, I think that's involved. But it is connected clearly to the first, the first calling of the disciples. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. So Jesus has built this charcoal fire. The word is anthrakia in Greek, and this is the second charcoal fire. Because in 1818, there's a charcoal fire that was built in the court of Caiaphas because it was cold and they built a charcoal fire, and Peter was there warming himself. Uh, And he was warming himself around that fire when it was cold, and that's when he's approached by the young girl, and he's, you know, he begins his pattern of three denials of Jesus. And I think that all of the, um, this connects again to the beginning of Revelation, because all of the seven churches are reproved for the sin that is in them that is like the sin of Peter, and this one anticipates Laodicea. You're neither cold nor hot, and so there's, you know, that perplexity and indecision is the basis of the temptation, and Peter standing, warming himself in front of the fire, and we all know what that's like. Part of you is cold, part of you is hot, part of it's, it's a very subtle connection, I think. So 
Jesus is making that charcoal fire, and it's around the charcoal fire that he will deny Christ three times. Therefore, the charcoal fire is set here because it'll be around this charcoal fire that he will have his three affirmations of love for Jesus. So it's, again, part of that restoration narrative. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. So Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. And I think he's the one that's basically counting them. And I, th I think it's clear that he's afraid to confront Jesus. Why is he afraid? Well, he's denied him the last time with oaths and curses. And, you know, he was uh, a, a fisherman. The Greek word for that is Hales. It's, it's an old salt uh, is what that is. Uh, and so they're no notorious for their ability to swear. But it was oaths and curses. He said, I, I know not the man. So... I think he's probably standing back from everybody and busying himself counting fish. But John thinks it's important enough to record the number, 153, and then the miracle that although there were so many, the net was not torn, which is what you would have expected. So it's a miraculous catch and a, and a miraculous strengthening of the net that was not accustomed to that kind of a catch, that it was not torn. So that preserved uh, 153. Now, I've read many commentaries, and I've never been satisfied with the significance of the number. The closest I've found, which I think is very intriguing, is a remark made by Doug Wilson. I think anybody that Googles Doug Wilson and 153 fish will bring up his teaching on that. He relates this, I think, justly to Ezekiel 47, where the temple of the heavenly Jerusalem is being described, and it's clear because that's where John gets his imagery of the tree of life and the leaves for the healing of the nations. And it's fed by the river that comes forth trickling down from the temple that becomes a vast and flowing stream and finally a river and filling the seas. And I think that what that relates to in John's gospel is the, the spear piercing, the Roman soldier who certifies the death of Jesus, pierces his side, now it comes the water and the blood. So that's the water that trickles forth from the side of Jesus, mixed with the blood of redemption, beginning with a trickle, that becomes the headwaters of the rivers of baptism that will flow throughout the entire earth and give drink to the uh, tree of life. The way that Ezekiel ends his gospel is clearly the pattern for John in Revelation. And so what he describes is a river that begins with a trickle, but then it's up to the ankle, and then it's up to the calf and the knees, and then finally it's, a, it's one that the swimmer can swim in. And then the fishermen go out in boats and catch fish in what had been the Dead Sea. And the significance of that is that's anticipating uh, all of the emphasis on fishers of men when you come to the New Testament. They're called from being fishers of fish to being fishers of men. In, in the Sea of Galilee, which is freshwater flowing into the Dead Sea, it's anticipating what is about to happen, that is that the gospel is going to go to the nations and bless all the nations. So that then is perhaps the clue, as Doug Wilson develops it, the, the triangulation of 17, and by that it's not multiplication, but it's in the ancient world they would take a number and then they would add all of its subunits. So if you add 17 plus 16 plus 15 all the way down, you come to 153. And the significance of that very likely is related to Acts telling us that at Pentecost there were 17 nations. That's where that begins. And then the Jews that come from those 17 nations uh, for that Pentecost observance go back and, you know, bring the gospel to 
all of the nations from which they're coming from, symbolically from 17. Then he also, Wilson does, he relates it to uh, the figure that Ezekiel uses of Ein Gedi, which is uh, the spring on the uh, western side of the Dead Sea, to Ain and Gliam, which is the spring on the uh, eastern side of the Dead Sea. And all of that is filled now with the waters of baptism, which bring forth fish uh, and become living where there is only dead. It's part of the desert blossoming like the rose. And the triangulation of Ain Gedi is 17. The triangulation of Ain and Gliam is 153. So that seems to be pretty significant, it seems to me. We're not used to that kind of gematria of reckoning, but that's because of our own lack of being able to read things symbolically. In the ancient world, they, they knew the significance of numbers and they gave them great import. We don't in our age, but we're darkened to a lot of the mystery of the text, unfortunately. So somehow there has to be significance to this for all of us who believe in the, uh, the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. So... That's the best explanation that I've ever heard of that. It makes good sense to me, especially the part about the evangelical mission of the evangelist as fishermen coming out of Ezekiel 47. So I've also seen in commentaries a lot of different people trying to interact with that number and trying to come to some sort of significance. The explanation you just gave is, I think, appropriate and complicated enough that it probably is escaping a lot of modern readers. Some of the other ones I've heard, Jerome uh, mentioned that it was the number of countries uh, that existed at the time, but he actually changed the number from 157 down to 153 to make that work. (laughs) And then others have said, you know, if you take 12, the number of disciples and square that, and you take three, the Trinity idea and square that, You've got 144 and 9, which is 153. So a lot of different ideas floating around out there. How is it that you, when you come across stuff like that, uh, kind of land on, well, that's probably not it, but this might be it? Well, I think um, like Augustine does something similar. He says you take the number of the, what was it, the days of creation and the Ten Commandments, and you have 17. That's just too arbitrary to me. I don't I mean, I, I, the numbers work, but the math works, but the logic doesn't compel to me. I think at least there are three points of contact in the way that Wilson has exposited it, and those are, seem to me to be more, more plausible. We're just not used to that kind of reckoning with numbers. You know, we've got Arabic numbering, but in both Greek and Hebrew, they use letters, and so the letters have significance as numbers. So the more points of contact help make it more plausible. Is what I hear you saying. Right. Yeah. They reduce the the notion of randomness, seems to me, so um, or the possibility of randomness. Well, that's all we've got for today. But we're obviously not done with John chapter twenty one. So next week we'll finish the interview and round out the end of the gospel. If you're enjoying the content, you can help others find the podcast by giving it a five-star rating and writing a short review to let others know what you think. Again, thanks for listening, and please take some time this holiday season to rate, review, and recommend to your friends the Rethinking Scripture podcast. 